Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos. Uh, and I prefer, of course, that you send me your questions via email. It's very easy to do, and it makes it so much easier for me to pull them and not have to necessarily uh, miss them in the comment section because sometimes I have been known to do that. Um, and, you know, because I, uh, anyway, you get the idea. <laughs> um, I wanted to really put a plug in this week for my Friday show, the Critical Conversation show we did, uh, where I got to talk about David Miscavige and his character and his uh, belief in Scientology. I have had a recent, I recorded an interview recently with uh, someone who has come out of Scientology fairly recently, who worked for Scientology, worked directly with David Miscavige for many, many years. His name is Mitch Brisker, by the way. He has done an interview on uh, Janice and Mark's channel. Uh, you can catch that if you are interested in seeing him, and I suggest you do. I will have an interview coming out with him in a couple of weeks, uh, which you will also see. And uh, he has been a very interesting source of information and new data for me that has helped clarify some points that I have been talking about for many years and answered questions on this very show about Scientology based on my suppositions about David Miscavige and whether he really believes in Scientology or not. Is he a con man or is he a religious fanatic? Well, the answer, like with Hubbard, might be a little bit more complicated than you imagine. And it certainly seemed to indicate to me that I might have had it a little wrong in earlier answers about that subject. And I have reconsidered that and thought, uh, this is information I want to get out as quickly as possible. Uh, and when I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Or if I think I'm wrong, I'm going to say something. I'm going to say so. And uh, I believe that's the case here. And so I would really uh, like you all to check out that Friday show where I go into this in a lot more detail, kind of explain myself a lot better. And, um, and plus, I'd really like to know what you all think about it. I have been a little surprised at some of the um, feedback or some of the sort of pushback on the idea that Miscavige might actually really believe in Scientology. It's so, and but I understand it because it is, of course, so much easier to believe and it's so much simpler of an explanation to imagine he's just running the con. And I thought, you know, for various reasons that that was kind of where his head was at, but maybe not. And if not, there might be far more drastic and dangerous consequences for Scientology and Scientologists in the future. So that's what we go over uh, in that Friday show. So again, I hope you'll check that out. Also, I got to put a plug in for the podcast. My Sensibly Speaking podcast is something I really, uh, really want you all to watch every week because every single thing I'm doing on that podcast is related in some fashion or another to cults and cultic belief and extremism and coercive control. And this week I had a guest on who was a fellow student of mine at the Salford University Coercive Control Program. Her name is Kate Amber. She is an education professional who has been uh, come up with her own model on coercive control to explain and educate judges and police forces and all the people we really want to see get educated on this topic so that we get laws and we get the social change that we so desperately want. 
so much of Scientology watching seems to be so flash in the pan. Oh, you know, excite me with something new. And there's actually a longer term game here. And there's there's a long and there are longer term issues, and we need people like Kate and so many others. Hopefully, some of you who are watching to take up the mantle and actually do the work that we all desperately need to get done so badly to change the laws and guides. You know the 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 sort of way that we think here in this country uh, about coercive control. And that's the kind of thing that's going to really make a difference with groups like Scientology in the long run. And I think that's what we all want. So uh, I want to put a plug in again for that podcast. <laughs> now that I've sort of, uh, you know, uh, stamped on about that, stamped my feet about that. All right. And uh, of course, I also need to uh, put in a plug for my Patreon and support for this channel. Times are not great right now, and I am doing the very best that I can to provide the very best quality work that I can, but I really do need your help uh, because I've been taking an economic hit just like everybody else or a lot of you I know have, and I and I get it. And But for those of you who might be in a position where you could help or could support this channel, I'm asking you to do so. Um, this it's, it's free content. I put it out here on YouTube. I'm not going to change that, but uh, I am entirely fan-funded, and I am really not necessarily in a position right now where I'm getting a viable amount of income from this work, and I would really like to change that condition. And of course, you can also uh, contact me for professional assistance uh, as a consultant uh, on the subject of coercive control, assisting people either leaving a cult, leaving a coercive situation, or giving some advice or direction or education to one-on-one to people who might need some help with family or friends who are involved in a coercive situation. I have helped people with this. Uh, I can help you with this. So you can always reach out to me via email or through my website. Uh, all of the links are always in every description of section of every video I've ever published. So that all being said, thank you very much for listening to all of my plugs here. Now let's get on with the question answering. <laughs> Maeve Kaplan, question regarding Grant Cardone. He is allegedly a scammer slash swindler, very rich and very ostentatious. Why would such an arrogant man part with any money to benefit the IAS? An ego that big would say, fuck charity. Not that Scientology is an actual charity. Recordings from auditing? Is it a tax thing? Thank you for this question. Yes, Grant Cardone is a very arrogant man. Uh, he's a very conceited guy, and yet he's also a fully realized human being. And and we have to remember, kind of like the talk that I gave on Friday, where I taught, where I mentioned Tom Cruise or David Miscavige, and we have this, you know, individuals who are complicated because we all are complicated. If we're going to be honest, right? We can fit or slot people into boxes or caricatures or reduce them down to simple words to understand basically who they are. But let's not fool ourselves that we're, a that we're actually really understanding who they really are. Grant Cardone is an arrogant, conceited prick. That is absolutely true. It comes across so clearly in every single interview or thing that he does. He just comes, and I've met him in person in Scientology, and that is who that guy is. But 
He's got a wife. He's got kids. You know, he has people. He has friends in his life. He has a true belief in Scientology. He really believes it. He's not in on the con. Not that con. He's a, he's being conned by Scientology while he is conning other people with his real estate nonsense. And all the exposure that's been done of, of Grant Cardone over the years hasn't really hurt him much. I mean, he is now, I, I saw him on my news feed last week appearing on CNN uh, as this touted, you know, millionaire, uh, successful man who we should listen to. That's who. That's where Grant Cardone is at in society right now. Is he's a he's somebody that people look up to, respect, and think has his shit together, and he thinks that that's because of Scientology. That Scientology itself, the the techniques of it, and the going OT, and all of that is absolutely fundamental to his success. Tom Cruise thinks the same thing. Both of these guys are completely in the Scientology mindset. So that's why they give back to the church. They don't have to be blackmailed into that. That would never work. They would they would call that out. I mean, these are very public figures. I, I, I'm talking about Tom Cruise as well as Grant Cardone here or any of these grifter types. These are people who do have belief. They're not all just simpleton people who are just running a con and that's all their life is about. Grant Cardone's a human being who wants to be a better human being and he's so locked into the Scientology mindset that he thinks who and what he is is admirable and that he has integrity and honor and that he's doing a good job. Like this is the kind of nonsense these guys feed themselves. Because who wants to think of themselves as the bad guy? Very few people. Very few people. So he sees himself as the good guy. And he sees Scientology as this, as this organization that is, that is changing the planet, that is saving the world. And he needs to feed that machine uh, in order to continue his own success. That's how I see it, at least, based on all the information I've uh, gar- you know, gathered about Grant Cardone over the years. So, uh, and, you know, and, I, and again, from my own personal interactions with him as well, when I, when we were, when I was in Scientology. So, um, so that's, you know, it's not a tax thing. It's not a blackmail thing. It's just a true believer being a true believer. And if, you know, and we use that expression, by the way, true believer, this is actually um, a book that you all might want to check out sometime because it's really, really good. It's written by a man named Eric Hoffer. And it was one of the first books that I read coming out of Scientology about the nature of belief. And it, and it didn't have anything to do with religion. It had to do, it was written actually around, uh, I believe, the, the, the years and years ago about communism and how that was sort of encroaching on people's minds in the United States. And uh, whether you're, you know, whether you think communism is a great economic system or not, I think we can all agree that governments who have embraced communism, namely the Chinese uh, government and the Russian USSR governments, have made a complete hash out of it and used it in an authoritarian way to control people. And that's what Eric Hoffer is uh, writing about in The True Believer. So 
just kind of put a quick plug in for that book. It doesn't uh, gain me anything to do that, but that's where that, you know, that whole kind of concept comes from. And it's worth, uh, it might be worth your time to check that book out. So there you go. The Paw Mom. I was listening slash watching one of your latest critical Q&As. You were flipping through one of the workbooks, is that what they are called? And you said it brings back some memories. I was wondering if you deal with PTSD from your time in Scientology. I can't imagine the process that would be required to recover fully or in part from this time of your life. Thank you very much for this question. And this is something I definitely enjoy talking about because my entire channel has been a sort of video log of my recovery from Scientology. I am a very different first person from who I was 10 years ago when I first got out. And you can actually see that change over time on my channel, uh, which is kind of cool. If, there's, if it has no other use or purpose, if, if this in history, if I leave no other legacy, then here's what a recovery looks like. You know, maybe that might all by itself serve in some fashion. Um, I have spent a great deal of time educating myself or being educated, getting therapy, doing work, interviewing psychologists and sociologists and neuroscientists on this channel in order to progress out of that Scientology mindset and in the process deal with my own CPTSD. It's called complex PTSD because it is not a one incident thing. I didn't have a traumatic battle or or combat situation or abusive situation. I had a whole string of them, a long lifetime of them. And through that process, there's this thing called complex PTSD. And that was, you know, that's kind of one of the things that I've dealt with over the years. I have dealt with it first through education. I, I am a, a tremendous believer in the power and catharsis that, that education brings. In other words, understanding what happened to you is a really big deal for me. And it's something I highly push or I, I highly recommend. Um, because that doesn't just deal with what happened to you. It sets you up so that it doesn't happen again. Or it doesn't happen as bad, or you can spot it earlier, or you can, you know, you can somehow head it off, or it doesn't have to be the same as what you've already experienced. But if you don't learn from your mistakes, if you don't learn what was done to you as a trauma survivor, as a cult survivor, then you're just setting yourself up for having it happen to you again. Learning about emotional needs, learning about your own weak points your own what, what what you know what we have emotional needs but what fills yours what are your requirements to be a happy person in your life these are important questions to answer for any of us and that's part of what i've been trying to you know sort of preach about all these years in doing this work so um so yeah i have been dealing with you know ptsd and it has the symptoms of it have declined over the years. I hardly ever now have nightmares about Scientology. I don't have flashbacks or weird uh, emotional responses to things like I used to. I don't have anger management issues the same way I used to. 
I still would say that I'm not a perfect human being by any stretch, and I certainly have, you know, my my mistakes that I make, you know, on an almost daily basis with things, but I am doing a lot better, and I'm in a better place now than I was 10 years ago uh, by a long shot, and it's been due to all the things I'm, I'm talking about here. So, um, you know, therapy has been great. We've addressed a number of things that I've discussed here. Um, and just talking with other people who have gotten people out of cults and their experiences with it and talking to other ex-Scientologists and their experiences with their own recovery and what's worked for you and how have you dealt with this. And, you know, that kind of sharing and, and sort of support, you could say, has, um, has also been incredibly helpful, been, been very healing for me. Um, it's an ongoing process. You know, I think I've said in the past that I have recovered, like with an ED on it, not recovering. And I believe that in terms of Scientology's biggest problems that it gave me, biggest pieces of false information that it laid on me, and the oh, many, many, many of the landmines that it sort of installs in your mind that go off, you know, like, oh, I'm sick, I must be PTS. Oh, he's being critical, he must have overts. You know, these sort of things, they always, that must, this guy's just an SP. You know, these kind of thought-stopping cliches that Scientology fills you with, I feel I've sort of emptied that vat of nonsense out of my mind now. I don't think that way anymore. It does, it's not the first thought anymore that if somebody's sick, they must be PTS. And it took a surprisingly long time for stuff like that to, to get out of my head. Uh, it's always kind of been a, you know, this ongoing work in progress. And I've, I've offered many, many, many updates over the years as to the, that, how that progress has gone. So, um, so that's, that's what I can say about that. It's a, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to do, you know, getting yourself deprogrammed you could say or you know reacclimated to the big wide world getting unculturated from the scientology cult mindset into the the real world mindset is uh it, you know it's it's kind of like i said it's kind of like an ongoing process but one that i feel i've made uh, significant strides in over the years all right there you go logamug Aside from having to clean windows with old newspapers, were there other odd practices wholly unrelated to Scientology or its organization, which nevertheless had to be followed due to it being ordered or endorsed by Hubbard at some stage? Hey, thank you very much for this question. Um, yeah, besides the uh, dispatch system of writing communications to one another in their organizations and the sort of telex system that exists... Um, those are sort of Scientology-related things. But here's what I thought about uh, in answer to this question. Car washing. There's a whole policy on how to wash cars. Um, there is a lot of emphasis in Scientology about vitamins. And Hubbard quotes from and, and references Adele Davis. John Atack has, has uh, not held back in his opinion that Adele Davis is a complete quack. And most vitamin therapy and most vitamin recommendations and supplement therapy and all of that are complete balderdash. I'm sorry if, if some of y'all believe that vitamins and supplements are absolutely necessary to your life, but they're not. 
unless you're getting qualified medical uh, support or help with uh, some sort of supplement issue or problem that your body is not producing what it should be producing, and it requires medical testing and, and work with an actual qualified medical professional to know that, you're probably just having the wool pulled over your eyes. You know, this supplement and vitamin industry is a complete scam, and it was the basis of the very first multi-level marketing scheme all the way back in the 1920s. This nonsense has been going on for a 100 years in the United States and around the world, and it's total bullshit. And, you know, you can say I'm full of it, but I'm not. I actually know what I'm talking about, and... Uh, I really, really hope that, you know, my, my cautious, words of caution here will, will help some of you maybe review or look at uh, the, the amount of money you're wasting on vitamin supplements and uh, mineral supplements and other chemicals that, uh, you know, that you feel you need to put into your body because somehow your body isn't doing the, the work that it absolutely is doing. So anyway, just wanted to throw that out there. This is rife throughout Scientology. I mean, like, bad. Every Scientologist generally will uh, fall for this vitamin nonsense because of what Hubbard said and wrote about it. So uh, so that's a thing. Also, another one, and this is mostly for the Sea Org, but this was pretty rampant through Scientology, was the evils of television and the uh, and how bad you how bad tv is how it's hypnotic and it's and it, and it sucks you in and you can't get out and and it's and it's taking over your life and you should avoid television uh you know okay <laughs> so that's a thing and and that and along the same line as that is also not doing or engaging in um recreational activities that are potentially re-stimulative in other words that are going to pull in energy uh, from your past traumas and and hurt you now, right? This, that's what re-stimulation is in Scientology is something happening now kind of kicks in past traumas and they come in on you and make your life miserable and make you feel awful or make you do things or say things that you wouldn't normally say or think. And that's re-stimulation. And it's, again, kind of nonsensical. It's There are related concepts, certainly, in trauma therapy. But uh, Hubbard's take on this is just total nonsense. But Scientologists will use this as a reason to not do or engage in activities that might be re-stimulative, like playing Dungeons and Dragons. This was a big thing for me as a kid, is I was a big D&D player until, uh, well, it wasn't, I, I didn't really fall for this. But a lot of people in Scientology would be like, oh, yeah, no, you, no, 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 that's re-stimulative, absolutely not, it's not okay, it's out ethics for you to be playing Dungeons and Dragons. And it was like, you know, okay. I grew up in the middle of the satanic panic, of, and we, we called out all that bullshit. We were like, yeah, you Christians have no idea what you're talking about. Pat Robertson and the 700 Club railing on and on about this satanic uh, game that that was you know taking over America and it was just such nonsense uh, you know we were not worshiping demons or devils or any such thing we were playing a game but Scientology also got on that satanic panic crazy train uh, about D and D so. Those were a few things I thought of in answer to your question here, Logamug. So I hope that gives you a little bit more info about how crazy things can get in the world of Scientology. 
Michael Yoder. In a lecture, Prerequisites to Auditing, from 1958, LRH talked about birth engrams, which are apparently terrible, and overt act motivation sequence. Can you elaborate on those terms? All right, birth engrams are simply engrams that are of your birth. Uh, you, you have been born in Scientology belief. You have been born trillions of times. And every single time you were born, it was an engram. It was a moment of pain and unconsciousness uh, for the baby, for the mother. Uh, but birth engrams tend to refer to the baby. Uh, the baby gets an engram. That's his present into life. Here you go, kid. You got an engram. Uh, and, of course, you're going to accumulate many more moments of pain and unconsciousness uh, during your life. And every one of those engrams is stored in your reactive mind and is going to re-stimulate, as I was just describing, and you know, impede your ability to succeed in life. This is Dianetics theory uh, and how it's laid out. So a birth engram is simply uh, an engram of your birth. An overt act motivation sequence is when you commit an overt act, which is a moral transgression or sin of some kind, you do something to somebody else that you really shouldn't be doing, like you walk up and smack somebody or steal from them or something like that. You have um, you you commit this overt, and yet it was unprompted, it was unjustified. There was no reason for you to do it, but you did it anyway. Uh, now maybe you thought you had good reasons, but the the target, the person you committed the overt against, didn't do anything to you. This isn't a tit for tat situation where you're getting them back. So because you've done this wrong thing. In your mind, you believe there must have been some motivator, some motivating reason that you had to go slap Joe or steal from Joe. And if there isn't one, you'll make one up. And that will be called your motivator, the thing that motivated you to commit the overt act. And Hubbard says that this is often delusory, that you know, people will make up motivators. They will become motivator-hungry. If they're running around like as a criminal, doing a lot of criminal things, they begin to get an, into a mindset that the world has done all these things to them. And look at what a victim they are. And look at how bad everybody has treated them. And this is why they have to run around doing all these criminal acts. Hubbard's explanation for this is overt motivator sequence. So, um, you know, he said the usual sequence in, you know, in, in, uh, as it should be is you get a motivator, then you commit an overt. But if you commit an overt without a motivator, you'll be motivator hungry, you'll invent motivators, and this is the reason why people hate each other and why there's divisiveness and why... Um, there's conflict and war and all of that, is it all has to do with overt motivator sequence. So that's, in a nutshell, what that is. Uh, there's probably, you know, a lot more I could say about it, but that's it in a nutshell, and, um, and there you go. Ron Fleming. I have a possible source for Scientology's body thetans, BTs, from American inventor Thomas Edison, who was also an early member of Madame Blavatsky's Theosophical Society. Usually people trace the exorcising of BTs to the occult practice of exorcising demons. 
However, given that Hubbard was well-read, embraced pseudoscientific ideas, and liked electrical gadgets, I think there may be an even closer inspiration where Thomas Edison wrote of swarms of highly charged and infinitesimally small entities of extraterrestrial origin which inhabit one's cells. Edison said, No one understands that man is not a unit of life. The unit of life is composed of swarms of billions of highly charged entities which live in the cells. I believe that when a man dies, this swarm deserts the body and goes out into space, but keeps on and enters another cycle of life and is immortal. Twenty years later, he wrote, I cannot believe for a moment that life in the first instance originated on this insignificant little ball, which we call the Earth. The particles which combined to evolve living creatures on this planet of ours probably came from some other body elsewhere in the universe. I don't believe for a moment that one life makes another life. Take our own bodies. I believe they are composed of myriads and myriads of infinitesimally small individuals, each in itself a unit of life, and that these units work in squads, or swarms as I prefer to call them, and that these infinitesimally small units live forever. When we die, these swarms of units, like a swarm of bees, so to speak, betake themselves elsewhere and go on functioning in some other form or environment. This sure sounds a lot like BTs to me. Given that Edison, the inventor of the light bulb, dealt with electricity, it might explain why in Hubbard's final days he wanted to use electricity in a last desperate attempt to exercise his own BTs. What do you think? I think that's fascinating. I think Edison's quotes there, if those are legit quotes, because uh, I didn't fact check this question. I'm just answering it. Um, I think that's absolutely fascinating. I think you make a very good argument that uh, Hubbard very well could have been influenced by Thomas Edison's writings. Now, the only thing in your entire question that I'll push back on is that Hubbard was not actually well read. He read from Reader's Digest. He read from National Enquirer. He read from summations, and he and he mostly learned from other people by them describing or telling him what things said. He was not this really avid, brilliant reader. He uh, claimed to be, but his knowledge base and the evidence, uh, and again, this is uh, really laid out in a lot of conversations that John Atack and I have had where John has asserted this, and I agree, uh, that Hubbard was not, you know, this brilliant mastermind. He was somebody who just glommed onto ideas that were explained to him or told to him or that he heard about. And um, so I doubt that he actually did read very widely of Thomas Edison's work, but it's entirely possible, especially with the nature of the quotes you've given here, that he might have heard of this and had some, some been influenced by it. I will say also, though, that in the original publication of, of History of Man from 1952, where Hubbard first references this concept of entities, which came before the concept of BTs, entities were more similar in concept to chakras. Uh, Hubbard talked about one in the head, one in the stomach, or the gut, and in other locations in the body that were more analogous to that sort of chakra concept than they were to what what Edison is describing here. Um, but I have to admit that what Edison is describing sounds an awful lot like 
a bunch of body thetans. So, you know, could these things have been mashed together or could uh, Hubbard have been inspired by this? Absolutely. I, I, there's no way I can credibly say that this has nothing to do with Hubbard's concept of, of body thetans. Uh, on the other hand, parallel ideas and parallel inventions of things happen all the time. So just because Edison said these words doesn't mean Hubbard ever heard them or was never or you know was uh, was definitely inspired by them. We 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 really can't say one way or the other, but you make a good case here, and I am um, I am fascinated to have learned that Thomas Edison said those things. Wow, that was that was really quite interesting. Okay, let's do flash answers this week. Three, five, six, Porwa. Hey, Chris, do you know if there's any evidence of Ron being injured from doing the OT3 research as he claimed? I think he mentioned in Ron's Journal 67 that he broke both his arm and his back, or did he just make all that up too? Now, he definitely didn't break his back. Hubbard was, uh, you know, Hubbard loved to be the martyr. And to uh, make these tall claims, and I, I'm absolutely positive that Hubbard's claims in RJ67 are just total balderdash. There's a word I don't get to use very often. Uh, you know, he, he lied blatantly about his injuries in the war, said he was blinded and crippled by the war. That was total bullshit. And I'm absolutely positive that he lied through his teeth about his injuries from the OT3 research. Uh, we do know about accidents that he had. I think he broke his arm or his body up in some fashion in a motorcycle accident at one point. But that wasn't because he was researching OT3. It's because he was a, a dork. So uh, anyway, that's, that's my take on that. Rick, what are the symptoms that the Scientology process has been overrun? Okay, well, it depends a little bit on the process sometimes, but basically if a person starts becoming really tired, boiling off, uh, frustrated, not coming up with answers to questions, um, being resistive, it could be because the process has been overrun, and this would be something that they would check on an e-meter. Has a process been overrun would literally be the question that would be asked, and if it responds, oh, okay, we've ran this process more than we should have, when did it actually uh, come to a release point is what they would call it, when an end point, a point where you were feeling better. And they would go and do what's called a rehab or a rehabilitation of that release point uh, in Scientology auditing. At least that's how that would go. Kia May. As a parent of young kids, I heard many influencers slash YouTubers advertise ABC Mouse. Many of these influencers are active Mormons. I was surprised to learn that ABC Mouse had a connection with Scientology. As far as I can tell, it's mostly financial connections. It would be interesting for you or someone you know from an ex-Scientologist network to look at whether this app managed by a Scientologist is secular or not. All right, thank you very much for this question. And uh, Tony Ortega actually has covered this in some detail on his blog. And so from that, I can tell you that it has been looked at and that no, there is not Scientology propaganda hidden in ABC Mouse. 
It is run by a Scientologist, and money you pay to ABC Mouse will, in some fashion or another, end up uh, going towards Scientology, at least some small percentage of it. But, um, but it's not a Scientology front group, and it's not something that is trying to covertly feed Scientology to people. Uh, it just so happens that it's a business that is run by a Scientologist. So that's what I know about it, and you can look that up. Uh, Google is your friend. Uh, on Tony Ortega's blog and check out what he had to say about it as well. So there you go. All right, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me blabber on like this. Uh, I really do appreciate your support and your viewership and uh, and I hope that uh, you will share this channel and this work around on the internet with your friends, family, and contacts because I'd like to continue growing my channel. I don't know if you all noticed, but we're only about 3,000 subscribers away from the big 50,000 mark. And I would really like to hit that. And I, would, I, I just think that would be an awesome milestone uh, for 10 years on YouTube. So um, help me out. You know, share my channel around. Let people know that I've I've put all this work here for them, uh, and of course, like I mentioned at the beginning, please support the channel. All right, with that, I'll see you guys next week. Bye bye.